0: What a joy to sing a song that ironically doesn't seem that joyful. I like the real songs, the ones that get to where our hearts are. And I appreciate Ann Steele's bravery in putting into words that sometimes we're just not feeling it. And yet we go to them anyway. So regardless of your feelings here this morning, whether they be high, low, left, right, right in the center, (laughs) the Word of God Is here for you today. We want to look at it together in Psalm 20. Psalm 20 is where we are in our series. And I think we'll find great hope in one of these lesser known Psalms in the Psalter. Psalm 20. And I'll read the entire chapter for us to begin. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices, Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans, May we shout for joy over your salvation, and in the name of our God, set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves His anointed. He will answer Him from His holy heaven with the saving might of His right hand. Some trust in chariots, and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. You hear those last words: "God save the king." They sound familiar. You heard them more than you had heard them in the last 70 years, should you have been alive that long, this past fall. Upon uh, the death of Queen Elizabeth II, in the official halls of power in London for the first time in over half a century, the country would sing together, God, save the King. It's a fascinating song. You know the tune, you've probably never read the words, but more than likely it was taken straight from this passage that we use today. It's one of the oldest national anthems in history that we know of. At least for 300 years, England has been using this tune in particular. The tune is old, but the the actual text is even older. Some historians have tried to figure out where this comes from, and of course, not giving any credence to the Psalms, they look for some other explanation. And so they can trace the usage of this particular phrase that's used so often in this monarchy that is England, God save the king, all the way back to the mid 1500s. It became a watchword for the royal navy. Now, you don't use watchwords that often. But if you were to put yourself in the scenario of like being in the military and wanting to approach your own base at night, having been out on an expedition, a watchword would be the word that someone would cry out to see who was there. And to to not get shot on the spot, you needed the right response. So the watchword for the Royal Navy was pretty simple. It was God save the king. The right response? Long to reign over us. The first one says, God saved the king. The other says, may he reign over us for a really long time. That's the right answer. That's the right sentiment. There's your counter word. It's the sign to show that you belong. You long for the rule of the king. I want you to think about that for a moment as an American, as a Westerner. What kind of culture or people, and this is the way you're probably thinking, what kind of culture or people truly craves the rule of a king? Would the typical uh, red-blooded American or individualist Westerner today identify himself as one subjected to another man. I don't know how much you've ever geeked out on early American history. I have just a little bit. You know what the great fear was in George Washington coming to power? Was that he would take upon himself kingly powers... It was the great threat. It was the greatest debate of the early history of the country. We cannot ever again allow any single man to have that much authority. It's easy to sit here today and Christianize, oh yes, God saved the king, I know where this thing is going, but I want you to understand that the culture that you come from does not celebrate such authority residing in any individual Especially one who claims to be human. A cry like this for one person to have so much power, so much authority, to have so much capacity to be able to boss people around, to be able to do things, is out of step with our time. We still sing in our own day about allegiance to ourselves and to our alternate institutions. Long live me. Long live us. Not may he reign over us forever, but may we reign over us forever. You know that's what a democracy is, right? A rule of the people. And the cry... For a king to rule over us seems out of touch because we've just frankly made ourselves king. It isn't just a political thing. It's a spiritual thing. We've got this adam in us, and it just leads us to want our own way to do our own thing. We all have it. We see it. Have babies and see if they have it. <laughs> you don't teach it. It's just there. You do your thing. But I would ask for all of us who have had at least enough time on this planet to experiment with our own self-rule. How's that going for you? Where has it gotten us? They do call America, by the way, the great experiment. How's this experiment going? There's some good for sure. But I want you to think about the high blood pressure that you regularly experience watching the news in this country and ask me, is this what we really were looking for? Is this what we wanted? Death, chaos, fear, stress, anxiety, destruction, decay of moral values. Like, is this really what we were longing for from the very beginning? The truth is that God didn't intend for us to be our own heroes, He never did. He never did. And it could be, it could be his kingship that we actually need. But for those of us who struggle with that idea of somebody else being boss, this text is for you. Because what you have here is an actual celebration of somebody else being in charge that's not you. Like, it's in the Psalms. This is like their songbook. You know, like you you break out the songbook like when you're happy. Like you, you listen to like your favorite playlist, you know, like when you want to be really jazzed up. Like these are the things that they would turn to to excite themselves. And one of the things that they would regularly sing about through the Psalms is that somebody other than them is the boss. They love it. And let me take it a step further because it's easy for us to idealize this and say, yeah, well, of course, God's the boss. Listen to this. They wouldn't just sing about God in general being the boss. They would sing about some human representative being the boss in the place of God. Like, the first one makes sense to us. We're like, yeah, God's the king. I I, I love it. I get where this is going. But Psalm 20 isn't about God's general kingship. It's specifically about His ruling and reigning for a man. And they love it. When you read this text carefully, you, you learn a little bit about ancient Near Eastern culture, especially the nation of Israel, It seems like what's happening here, as you do some reverse reading from the text, is about this nation is about to go to war. There's there's a battle on the horizon. And anytime there's a battle, you need to prepare. You've got to prepare your army. You've got to prepare your resources. You've got to prepare your strategy. There's the human realm of things that need to be prepared. Presumably, up to this point, the human strategy has been taken care of. The human resources have been aligned. But if you're an ancient Near Eastern Israelite, you have one more step of preparation. Before the king goes to battle, he goes to God. And he appeals to God for divine help. And so it seems that David, if he's the one that wrote this, has actually like set up almost a recipe or a formula for any king going into battle. You've already prepared your troops. You've already prepared your strategy. But now you go to the temple and you prepare your own heart for what's about to take place. And in the first few stanzas, you hear the people crying for God's blessing on the king. And then in the next few stanzas, you see them praise in advance that God will work through his king. This is an encouraging text for them as they are facing real threat. I mean, few of us really know what that is like to live in true warfare on a regular basis. Some of you, as soldiers, do. Many of us, as civilians, do not. But for the ancient Near Eastern Israelite, this was like a monthly occurrence. I mean, have you read the book of 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, and 2nd Kings? It's a hot mess. They're always fighting somebody about something. I just read this morning, just my like, like daily Bible reading. It's like I've never read it before. I was reading 2 Kings, and like, does anybody know the name Jehu? Like, that guy's a psychopath. <laughs> like, there's a particular instance in which, like, he goes and tricks people into cutting off, like, 70 heads and puts them in baskets. I mean, like, I don't know what kind of I don't know how comfortable I would feel in this culture in light of all the violence in light of all the threat in light of all the anarchy in light of all the battle and yet these people still found great hope in singing these songs that God would grant victory to his king on a regular basis and he intends for us to find hope in this as well I know there's objections we don't have a monarchy But I think by the time you get to the end of the text, you're going to be able to see and savor God's King, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. To walk through the psalm and show how they express their confidence in God's King. And my prayer would be that it would entice you to express the same confidence, to enjoy that same confidence in God's King. They express the confidence in two ways. It's very easy to break up this passage if you're a note taker. Verses 1 through 5, they express confidence in God's King through prayer. And then in verses 6 through 9, they express confidence in God's King through praise. The prayer is a stunning one. I want you to note and there's a little background I want you to have here, just your own culture, not Bible culture, your own culture. I want you to note as you're reading through this again how much power and authority they want their king to have. Remember, early American history, we're doing everything we can to not let any individual accrue so much power. Here I want you to see that they are praying to the God of heaven that this one person would have almost unlimited power. Just notice what they pray for. It's fascinating. Uh, Verse 1, may the Lord Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. The first thing that they pray for, for their king, is invincibility. They want him to go into battle and not be harmed by it in any way. They appeal to the covenant name of God, like their own first name basis with God. Anytime you see Lord in all caps, it's referring to Yahweh. as his special relational name with his people. It says, may this God with whom you're in special relationship with, may he answer you in the day of trouble. May he respond. When you're in between the rock and the hard place, which is the literal rendering of the word trouble, like when you're there and it's going to be inevitable, may, may Yahweh respond to you favorably. And then in that Hebrew way, you know how they like their their own form of poetry, the parallelism. You see a similar idea. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. You've got God being appealed to again and then something similar. Not just answer this time, but protect. But before I get to the protection piece, just notice that, the God of Jacob. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why the God of Jacob? It happens often in the Psalms. Seriously, like I'm reading through and I'm like, why not the God of Abraham? Or, remember, Jacob's name, which meant deceiver, was ultimately changed to Israel, prince with God. Why not the God of Israel? Why the God of Jacob? Because Jacob, dear brothers and sisters, was like, pardon the phrase here, but like the patroness, saint of trouble. I mean, if there was ever somebody who was just always like sticking his foot in, like messing it up because of his own stupid decisions, it was Jacob. And I firmly believe that when you see this, he'll do the same thing in Psalm 46. He's saying, you're going to find yourself in a hot water situation. And the God of Jacob the one who got him out of all his hot water situations, he will get you out of this hot water situation. May the God of Jacob protect you. Protection meaning literally to put on a high rocky fortress and not let anybody get to you. May this guy be invincible, untouchable. We don't want that. We want term limits. Four years, four years, no more. It can't be more than four years. Okay, we'll give him eight. We'll give him eight. One guy did Ten. But that was, we weren't going to let that happen again. So eight years, that's all the guy gets. Short live the president. <laughs> and what they're saying is, may this guy be invincible. May he be untouchable. They're not only praying for invincibility, it continues. They, they pray for divine enablement. Look at verse 2. May he, talking about God, send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. I mean, by asking for help to come from the sanctuary, the holy place, they're talking about like the the center of the tabernacle. I mean, this was the place where God in heaven chose to represent himself on earth. This was like, you talk about plugging into the source. They're saying, we pray that you would be plugged into the source of all power on earth. The holy place. May He give you support. May He strengthen you from Zion. Mitten, all kinds of stuff here today. I rarely know what the word Zion means when I see it. Does anybody here have a a mastery over the word Zion? Like, why the word Zion? What is that? Thankfully, y'all give me the time to study this stuff. Zion is just the beautiful, the poetic name for the city of God. Sometimes it's called Mount Zion. Geographically, it's referring to Jerusalem, typically. But there's something more about it. There's something more poetic. There's something beautiful. It isn't just a functional name. It's a poetic name. And it points to the place where God lives, the place where God reigns. Saying something like, may God support you from Zion would kind of be like someone asking for reinforcements from Thomas Mallory's Camelot. When you think of Camelot, you think of King Arthur and the knights of the round table. You're like, it, it there's a there's this mythical beautiful thing about Camelot. It's this really ideal. But the difference between Camelot and Zion is that Zion actually existed. It was a real city. It was the place that God would rule and reign. And so once again, he's, he's praying for backup from heaven itself. Not separation of powers. This one's the executive, this one's the legislative, this one's the judicial. They're like, we want this guy to have all the power. <laughs> In fact, we want him to have the power of heaven itself. So they pray for invincibility, they pray for enablement, They also pray for divine favor. This is one that we don't even think to pray for in our own country and context. Look at verse 3. It says, May he remember all your offerings in regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. Now that's fascinating. They're praying for his favor with God, that God would look upon him and treasure him and bless him in every which way. Because what would happen is the king, before going into war, would offer sacrifices. That's just an expression of his gratitude toward God. And they're praying that God would look on every sacrifice this king has ever offered favorably. That he would take this special burnt offering that he was about to burn. And listen to this. The Hebrew word, I love this, the Hebrew word there is to regard as fat. For those of you who um, grew up like in the 90s like I did, I'm not referring to fat, P-H-A-T. Look it up in the Urban Dictionary if you need to know. I'm talking about fat, F-A-T. May he regard as fat your burnt offering. What is Why? My, don't we try to cut out the fat? Or you know, like, we try to avoid the fat? My uh, friends, fat is where all the flavor is. I hate to break it to you. That's why they charge more for a ribeye or a New York strip than a top sirloin. And in the Old Testament in Leviticus... It says that God actually treasures the, the fat portions of the animal. The priest could eat certain parts, but the fat was reserved for God. It was the best. It was the flavorful. Like, he loved it. He craved it. What, what the, the people are praying here is that God would crave everything that you offer him, that he would enjoy the gifts that you give him. They want Him to be divinely favored. They want Him to be invincible. They want Him to have unlimited power. And then look at verse 4. They also pray, May He grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. All right, here we're crossing a line. Ain't no way. We're praying for any human individual on this planet ever, ever, ever to have whatever he wants whenever he wants it. And yet the parallelism is undeniable. May He grant you your heart's desire. May He give you whatever you crave. And may He fulfill all your plans. Could you imagine that? Like one person on the planet who achieves every strategy they ever lay out. I can't even finish a four-task to-do list on a Monday. And yet they're praying that this guy would be able to check off any box he ever writes down. This is stunning. Talk about politics and a party platform. Like, imagine a president who fulfills all his promises. They're like, if you say it, we want it to happen. It's mind-blowing it. At this point, they just go ahead and break down and pray for uh, what what they ultimately hope to see from this. It's not just that he'd be uber-powerful and regarded by God with great favor, but notice verse 5, they join in on the prayer here, not just pray for he, but we. It switches from first person, I mean, from third person singular to first person plural. It says, may we shout for joy over your salvation. And in the name of our God, set up banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Notice that the final thing that they're praying for in this context is that they would be able to throw a party like no one has ever seen. I mean, the word shout for joy. I know a lot of us come from Baptist backgrounds. We think that that means, yay. (laughs) Well, it's joy. Joy. But, I, like, I think, like, if I look at the Hebrew word correctly and the way that it's used, like, it's a literal shout. Like, they want him to be able to say "Yeehaw" and mean it. <laughs> I mean, really, like, I can say that, but I don't think I've ever said it and meant it. They want this guy to be able to, like, th- they, they want him to win in such a way that they all just get to let it rip. In his salvation, notice that. In his victory, in his win. I know how a good American would pray that. Lord, may we rejoice in our deliverance. May we rejoice in the good things that we do. We don't like to rejoice in the win of another, and yet here they are all in on him winning to such a degree that they just get to join in on the party, and they even say, uh, May we lift banners. Like, we want to wave the flag. I'm talking like when your team wins the Super Bowl and you go out to Target and buy a $30 flag to stick out in the front of your house saying that your team won. Like, they want to be able to wave the flag. They want people to see that they're God, not them. Notice this. The banners of what? Not the banners of their own name. They're not flying their own name. What they want to see in this is that the banners in the name of our God would be set up and waved and established and then they finished with something that they similarly prayed may the Lord Yahweh fulfill all your petitions just in case they didn't get it the first time they pray for this victory, the ultimate answer to me this is fascinating friends, I mean we're only moving through the first portion of this and again we've got to naturally ask ourselves Is like, really? Like, they're, they're, they're happy about this? They're not just happy about it, but they're hopeful that one man would have this much power. But what I want you to note is they not only pray in confidence to God's King or about God's King, but they go ahead and just, they shift gears. They just go straight to praise. They're not only asking, but they're just going to affirm. Like, they just know that this is the way God works, And something interesting happens, admittedly, in this second part. We move from the praise, I mean, from the prayer to the praise. But for the first time, we're going to have somebody speak up in this particular psalm, this poem, in the first person singular. You're going to note I, me, my. At this point, you would just naturally assume that if they're reading this psalm before the king goes off to battle, that they have prayed publicly this first part. And now the king's going to stand up and he's going to say what he thinks about what they've prayed. Listen to his opening line. It says, now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. That's pretty confident. I mean, this guy's not hedging any bets The king is somehow able to, with great confidence, read these lines and say, I know God's going to give me the victory. I know we're going to win. What in the world would ever give a king such hubris, such a big head? Like, how could anybody say, like before a battle takes place, I mean, maybe you could say, I'm confident that we're going to win. You know, I'm feeling good about the battle we're about to go to, but who's going to say, yeah, I know that this is a done deal. In the end, we win. The Lord saves his anointed. Anointed, by the way, being himself, the one who was coronated as king with oil being poured on his head. Well, anyone in the Davidic line enjoyed this special promise that was first given to David in Second Samuel chapter 7. You should go back and check it out sometime. This is one of the most important passages in all the Old Testament because it was a game changer. I know we use that term too much, but I'm using it legit. It changed the game. Up to this point, they had always expected God to come and rule and reign, like, you know, just from heaven. But you remember, like, back in Deuteronomy, God said, hey, at one point, I'm going to give you a king. And he's not going to accumulate for himself horses or chariots or wives or anything like that, but you're going to have a king. And you read it, if you're ever reading through Deuteronomy, I encourage it. You read right over that and you're thinking, well, that's interesting. And then you get to the book of Samuel and you find out that the people were wanting a king, but Samuel presents it kind of oddly because, like, he's saying, like they just wanted to fit in with the rest of the nations. And you're like, is this king thing a good idea, a bad idea? You know, like, don't, I mean, it doesn't get any better than just God ruling and reigning over his people, right? Like, isn't that like the gold standard of good rule? And yet before they ever started wanting that because that's what everybody else had, God had already set it up that they would have a human ruler that would represent him perfectly. And so God validates his initial idea through this special promise to David, because the problem was in 1 Samuel, just hang with me, a little bit of background, the problem was that they wanted a king like the other nations, so they picked the guy that would be on the cover of GQ. They picked the tall guy, they picked the handsome guy, they don't pick the guy that's got a heart for the Lord. That was their pick as a king, but God saying, no, I'm going to pick for you a king. And what they find, or what God finds, excuse me, is like this ruddy young man, small, young, seemingly untalented. I mean, he knows how to take care of sheep, and yet it is to that very man that God would make this promise, that he would establish through him a victorious dynasty that would never be fully and finally conquered. That's 2 Samuel 7. So anybody who proceeded from, pardon the phrase, the loins of David, anyone who was his direct descendant, could actually claim with great confidence this promise for ultimate, full, and final victory. It isn't because they thought that they were so talented and special. In fact, it was the opposite. The reason why the king could make such a climactic statement is because God had promised that he would work in a special way through his anointed one, through his king. And so David, or whoever the king is at this point, says, now I know that the Lord will save his anointed. He will answer him, listen to this, from his holy heaven. Remember earlier, the, the, it's like the audience, the people, they were just praying a little too small. They were praying that Yahweh would answer him or help him from the temple that Yahweh would answer him from Jerusalem, the the city of God. Here, the, the Davidic king stands up and says, I'm praying or trusting and knowing that God will answer me from heaven itself, from his holy heaven, from the abode of God. That's where my power source is coming from. And notice this, I love it. It says, with the saving might of his right hand, So God's going to answer with this like saving might, this power to save, this power to rescue, this power to grant victory. But notice the phrase, friends, with his right hand. It's a figure of speech. It isn't that God is right-handed and you left-handed people are somehow cursed. But we know the analogy. I love Hebrew poetry. I just love poetry. Like pictures work. When you talk about somebody doing something with their right hand, you're like, okay, they've got great skill in this. I could sign my name with my right hand, and you would actually be able to read it. I could try to sign my name with my left hand, and you wouldn't have a clue what was going on. I've got like a similar amount of strength, you know, like I'm still the same person, and yet the right hand is the hand of competence. God just doesn't execute his saving power. He does it with great skill. Like for him, it's like a right-handed layup. It's like signing your name with your right hand. Like, it's, he's just got total mastery over the way that he exercises and distributes this saving power and grace. And the king is able to say, I know that he's going to work skillfully in applying this power in and through me. I mean, it is mind-blowing. And now, in verse 7, everybody sings. So in the first five verses, it's just the congregation. In verse 6, it's the king. Now in verse 7, note the, the, the we. This is awesome. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Notice that. Their confidence is still ultimately in God. But they all know, king and people together know that he's chosen to work through a king, and so they're going to trust that God will grant salvation. It will not be chariots or horses. Um, I'm going to look around. All right, I'm going to do it. I want to get a little technical with you. Give me 60 seconds. We talk a lot about Hebrew poetry, and I've assumed that, when I say parallelism, you know what I'm talking about. Two ideas that mirror one another. Just like we like rhyme. Roses are red, violets are blue. Something, something, something. I love you. (laughs) We're like, oh man, it's great poetry. You and ooh and, you know, like you. The Hebrew people, they didn't care about the way it sounded. They cared about what it said. So they loved rhyming ideas. That's That's called just like comparative parallelism, semantic parallelism. Like they'd like it to be the same, but there's there's something else that they like, and I just I just wish you we could could all appreciate this. They didn't just like semantic parallelism; they also liked antithetical parallelism. They didn't have all these words with the big syllables. I mean. Means opposing parallelism. They liked ideas that not only were similar, but if you could get an idea that was the exact opposite, it was like, ooh, that's good poetry. That's really good. So I want you to note something here. So far, in verses 1 through 5, you've got this semantic parallelism. You've got these lines, like the first line and the second line resemble. Then you get to the next verse, and the first line and the second line resemble. They're like the same idea. Here, what you're going to have is a switch-up It's not going to be the same idea anymore. It's going to be totally opposite ideas, but in the same category. So we're not talking here in this comparison, uh, apples and oranges. We're talking about a white apple and a black apple. And what I want you to note (laughs) is that In switching to antithetical parallelism, what the Hebrew author is trying to do is say there's really only two categories that you can consider here. There's no gray space. There's no spectrum. It's a binary. It's a one or a zero. Note the categories for the Hebrew author. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, line one, category one, line two, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. It continues, line one: they collapse and fall. That's alternate outcome number one. But we rise and stand upright. That's outcome number two. There's no in between. You're either going to trust in the name of the Lord your God. You're going to boast in it. You're going to brag in it. It's funny. Like you, you look up five translations on this. There's there's five different words for trust. Some of them say brag or boast on the name of the Lord our God. Some say trust in the name of the Lord our God. The point is that they're, this, is, this, is their, this is like their swing thought. This is what they're thinking about. Some are depending on thinking about God to give them the win, and some people are thinking about horses and chariots, which is pretty interesting because horses and chariots in that particular time and place were like the epitome of military power in the ancient Near East. You thought our technology was amazing. I mean, in that culture and society, this was mind-blowing. I remember watching a movie or reading a book the other day about World War I. I can't remember because I was doing both. But the way that, that those first men felt when they saw tanks show up was terrifying. The guys were like running and absolutely, they'd never seen a tank before. They had no idea. It It was unstoppable. And once people started like hooking up these like iron carts to horses, you're dead in the water. You don't have a chance. And let's take it a step further. The king of Israel in the book of Deuteronomy was forbidden. Check this out. He was forbidden Like, no, no. He was forbidden from accumulating to himself horses. No tanks for you. He could not build the kind of army that the other peoples would have. He would have to rely solely on Yahweh to bring him deliverance. And this is the way that God set it up for all his people. There's only two categories. You're going to be depending on your human stuff, your human might, your human resources in category number one, or you're going to depend on Yahweh himself in the way that he has sovereignly chosen to provide. And with that, there are only two outcomes. One is that you stumble and fall, a metaphor for you dying on the field. The other is that you rise and triumph, that you are victorious and that you live. There's two ways. And I know I'm talking about the ancient Near Eastern context, and trust me, I'll bring it around to us eventually, but I need to do it now too, friends. There are only two choices on the shelf. It is God or it is man and what he can come up with and God shares His glory with none other. And the outcomes are only two. Life and life eternal provided in Him and His King, or death in this life and for eternity to come. And so they sing this not as a warning, they sing this with great worship and joy. Because they know what they've chosen in this Which ultimately leads to their summary cry of praise. Oh Yahweh, O Lord, verse 8 or verse 9. Save the king. May he answer us when we call. (laughs) They're just determined. They're, They're dead determined that this victory, this salvation, this deliverance from this particular threat, it's going to come from God through the king. And so they cry out one more time, Oh God, save the king. And then they do this final prayer, May he answer us when we call. That's either the king responding to them, but more likely, May God answer us in this prayer. May this actually happen. And that's the song. They sang that and they were happy. They're they're good to go. God, we're trusting that you'll give this king all this power, and we know that you will. Amen. Good song. But let's get back to our own culture for a moment and let's see how that song plays out on our own hit charts. Because when we've sat and contemplated that the ways that rules should best come, humanly speaking, we don't come up with this system. I hate to sound like a, a history professor. Like what's that, um, what's that subject in history where you study like politics and stuff? Political science? I thought it was called something else. Either way, you know the one I'm talking about. Political science, sometimes it's in history, it's when you study government and it's boring. Civics, thank you. (laughs) Ten points. (laughs) If you even remember that you had a civics class, I need you to hang with me for a second. There was a time in your personal history where you discussed this aspect of history. And naturally, we, um, we explored democracy and the rule of the people, and we're like, yes, that's the one. Or a republic, a democratic republic. We love the idea of people rule. We just think that that's the one, that's what we're born with. And there's a biblical civics as well. Did you know that like if you were to like look at different spots, like in the Bible, there's different government structures and setups? And what I would point out to you by way of conclusion here is that One of the options on the table really was a theocracy. Theocracy, theos, rule by God. Direct rule by God. You're like, oh, that's the one. And yet, God didn't want that. He didn't want direct rule. God had set it up from the very beginning in in, in the eternity past that he would actually, like the best form of government wasn't theocracy alone, but it would be a theocratic Monarchy rule by one, empowered by God. That's what these royal psalms in the book of Psalms are all about. You go to Psalm 2, it's the ideal of God doing his thing through a human king. You go to Psalm 18 that we read a couple of weeks ago, God does his thing through a human king. Psalm 20, God does his thing through a human king. Psalm 21, same thing. What's the ideal form of government? Like, what's the best one? It's not democracy for sure. I mean, it works for a fallen world right now. Jesus isn't ruling and reigning from a physical throne on this planet, so I'm good with it. Don't want to sound un-American. But at the same time, nor am I saying that we need to go whole hog theocracy, because that's not God's plan either, actually. What God intended was that His rule and reign would be represented in a person. And someone who is actually truly human. That's what 2 Samuel was expecting. That's why in the Gospels, they were looking for a man. They were looking for a lineage. They were looking for someone to come and represent the rule of God. And they thought that he would be specially empowered by God, but they would have no idea that it would be even better than that. It would be God Himself. God Himself would come and enter into humanity and take on that promise given to David and said, you know what? I'm going to rule and reign on their behalf. I'm going to obey in all the ways that they failed. I'm going to fix all the things that they ruined. I'm going to fight every one of their battles. The internal sin that calls them to rebel against me, I'm going to fix that and the death that they deserved on account of their rebellion against me, I'm going to fix that. I'm going to endure it in myself. I'm going to outlast it. I'm going to defeat it by rising again from the dead in in, in three days. And then, with the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to enable everybody connected to me to overcome every adversary in the world itself. The world would no longer be able to crush people into its mold, but they would now have the power to live for Him, and fully represent Him in all joy. And how does it come? It comes through His King, our Lord Jesus Christ. God save the King. We truly, in our hearts, Long for someone to rule in that way. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, He has come. He is ruling. He is reigning. It is good. And He will return and make it even better. We need to remember that. Like, it is a good thing to have such a good, gracious, all-powerful King in our Lord Jesus. And I think it invites us practically into two responses. The first one is one of allegiance. If you have not yet bowed the knee to this Lord Jesus Christ, I'm telling you, there are only two alternatives. You either rebel against this King and you will be crushed and experience the act of wrath of God for all eternity or you will confess Him as Lord and Savior alone. No help from anyone else, not yourself, not some pope or priest or religious institution, but you will confess Him alone as Savior and Lord, and you will experience life here and now and life eternal beyond the physical death that you will face. Like allegiance. Like when you read a Psalm 20, you're thinking, man, if there's a king like this out there, I better be underneath his rule. And the only way to do that is not by cleaning yourself up, not by turning over a new leaf, but it's by coming to Him empty-handed, trusting that He will bestow His grace and pardon upon you and receive you into His eternal kingdom. Allegiance. And then, it isn't just allegiance now, but can I just remind us, just a reminder, I'm not trying to sound preachy, but allegiance then and allegiance here and now, I just maybe a pastor for a second. Sometimes we just get tricked into thinking, even though Jesus is our Lord, that we just make a better boss. And we try to do things our own way, and we try to live for our own little kingdoms. And friends, it stinks. It's just a terrible, like he's got it figured out, like do things his way. Can I say this? Because I have a special heart for those that Paul had a special heart for in 1 Corinthians 7. This is true for everybody, but I think it's especially true for those who are single and want to be married. Because it's easy to say the thing that I really need. My kingdom needs to be getting a wife. My kingdom needs to be getting a husband. Like, my kingdom needs to be establishing a family or whatever. And you start, like, orienting your life around some alternate ultimate. And you end up missing it all. What I've just noticed is that when people actually give up, on trying to create their own perfect little kingdom, and just follow the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone, that tends to be when God finally like, gives them all that they ultimately desire. Read Matthew 6 at some point. Food, clothes, you're ever worried about it? And what does he say? Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. It's not just true of singles. It's true of somebody getting a business off the ground. It's true of somebody trying to plan for their retirement. It's true of somebody trying to outlast a tough season physically or emotionally. Don't make the trial the thing. Make the king the thing. And trust me, he will rule. He will reign. He will win. He's got all the power. Allegiance. Allegiance. But then the second part of this that I just want to remind us of was a fateful response to God working through His King, it's expectation. It isn't just allegiance, like I'm going to live for Him, but it's expectation. He will do what He said. He will bring it to pass. And how does this happen? Like, how do we become like these people who are so doubtful and despairing, and, like to someone who's so dynamic and confident? The key to praise is prayer. Don't you see it over and over again in the Psalms? It starts off with prayer and these people end up in praise. The key to worry is trying to figure it out on your own. The key to actual expectation and faith and confidence is just saying, oh God, I don't have a clue what's going on right now. I need you to deliver. I need you to work. I trust King Jesus to fix this particular problem. And then all of a sudden, you find yourself on the back end giving Him praise because He did His thing. We're always so surprised. Like, well, gee, God answered prayer again. Isn't that cool? It's the way He works. Even though Please hang with me. Even though they knew, they knew that the king had this special promise. They still prayed. My kids ask me sometimes, like, or one of them asked me, why, why do we pray? Why do we pray if God already knows? I'm like, you're not the first person to ask that question. My best answer is just the way they chose to do it. Hey, here, here's your first lesson in kingship. Let the king do it the way he wants to. You know the way he wants to do it? prayer, depending on him. Sure, he could have bypassed that, but he didn't. He said, I'm going to work through this. And so we pray personally, we pray corporately asking God to work in all these mighty battles that we see in our own life, in our community, in our world, and ultimately for the eternal good of souls forever. We pray. And so we enjoy great confidence in Our King. We're going to practice that right now. We're going to pray and then we're going to praise. I want you to see how the two lead right to one another. I'm going to lead us in prayer and then the musicians will come and we're going to sing a final song of praise and I want you to note the title of the song Christ, our hope in life and death. Now, lest you think the word Christ is Jesus' last name, I want to remind you of what it is. Christ means the anointed one. The prophet, priest, king. We're saying that Jesus, our king, is our hope in life and death. Let's pray to that end. Let's praise in song. We'll have one final prayer for a church member that's leaving and will be dismissed. Okay. Let me pray for us generally now. Father in heaven, We come to you in full need for you to give us victory in every area in which we struggle, knowing that you have met our greatest need in our Lord Jesus, who has conquered death on our behalf, who has satisfied your wrath for our rebellion, who has provided righteousness for us that we could never secure in and of ourselves, who has enabled our obedience in this life, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. We enjoy the gentle yoke of Jesus, and we pray that we would walk faithfully under it, that You would strengthen our allegiance to You, and that You would mark us as a church, O God, by regular asking and dependence upon You, knowing that that's the way that You work. And when we pray, may we pray for things that You want, the things that matter, not just gobbling up prayers on our own selfish desires. And I pray also, if there are any who are here who have yet to come under Your Lordship by faith alone, if there are any who are here who are still living for themselves, still persisting under their own rule, I I pray that they would see the error of their ways and that they would come to enjoy the hope that can only be found in Christ the Lord. Our only hope in life and death. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.